Thank you again for being here today. It's good to see you, um, and I want to welcome in those of you who are joining us online. It's always good to have you be a part of uh, Freedom Online. I apologize for my voice. Uh, somebody told me this morning, they said, every time you go on vacation, you come back with something, so you've got to quit going on vacation. I, don't, I, don't, I hope that's not the message in, in that, but uh, we did enjoy some time away, and uh, if you'll put up with my frog voice, we'll press on uh, through today. It is always a joy to me when we get to go to other parts of the country or other parts of the world and to uh, to just see how God is at work in other places. Um, last Sunday as you were worshiping here, we were tuned in and, and watching and worshiping with you while we were getting ready to go to church in Southern California. And we visited a church we had never been to or ever heard of before, just tracked down online. And it was a church almost identical in age to our church, church plant, uh, almost the same size. Just, just always encouraging to see people hungry for God, seeking the Lord, worship that's rich, and to just see that God is doing a work around the world, that uh, it's easy to become us centered and to just think that it's all about what's happening here. But God is reaching the world, and good things are going on in other places. But it's good to be back home and be with you. And today, we're going to begin a new series uh, entitled Avoiding the Pitfalls that will carry us through the next several weeks right up to the holidays. Uh, When I was a kid, you know, we're we're approaching the holidays now, and everybody's starting to think in terms of Christmas and Christmas gifts. And uh, I was thinking this week, when I was a kid, I think if I had to pick my all-time favorite Christmas gift that I ever got, it was it was one of those things that my older brother and I got as a joint gift. Did any of you ever get those at Christmas time? A gift you had to share with your your sibling. Well, our, our that you know the big gift that you had to share that year was an Atari game console. Now, I know kids today would think that we were like, you know, caveman ages to to have ever played Atari because of how that looked. But we just, that that was the coolest thing ever when we got the Atari and loved what we got at Christmas. But I I remember I saved up my own money. It cost $30. There was a game that I wanted for Atari, and it was called Pitfall. Any of you remember the game Pitfall? Oh, it was it was pretty amazing. Little little man that was basically like a stick figure, and he would just run from one side of the screen to the other, and then you'd go to another screen and to it. But on every screen there was some kind of something that he had to navigate. It would either be a lake that he had to cross, or or a tar pits or a hole or something that he had to get past, and he might have to swing on vines to get over it. Or if he's got to cross the water, he's got to jump on the rocks to do it. But then you discover that the rocks are actually, actually crocodile that open their mouths and swallow you up. And so it was really exciting. It was, it, you know, Pitfall was the name of the game. And, but, but that silly little game, it was a picture of what a lot of life is like. You know, the, your little man, he's always chasing after the prize. that's always just out of sight. But on, in every screen, even if it looked like it was safe, there's some kind of pitfall ahead that you had to learn how to navigate. There was always a way to get past it, always a way to get through it or over it, but you had to learn how to get past the pitfall. Well, that's what the next month is about. We're going to be talking about some of the major pitfalls that will tend to trip us up, bog us down, or make us just completely ineffective, losing our joy, losing our impact in life. And so it's all about avoiding the pitfalls. And today, we're going to talk about the first one, and to me it may be the most pervasive one. It's, I assure you that what we'll talk about today is something that has, 
has been a part of everybody's life or it will be. And it's a pitfall that Jesus himself talked about in very direct uh, terms, pretty harsh terms. And it's the pitfall of spiritual indifference, apathy, just being lukewarm about God and the kingdom and the things of God and about life and your calling. You know, it's sort of tragic to to look at how we have sort of become the mm, whatever generation. Have you noticed this? How we have become just across the generations, just in our time. It seems like we have become such a, a, I guess so, kind of generation, whatever just whatever. I heard recently that the, they did a, a survey of, of the most offensive words in the English language. You know what they found was the number one most offensive word today? It's the word whatever. Wh- whatever. Whatever. The, the people will say that as just a way of, of saying, I don't care. I, I don't care about you. I don't care about this decision. Do, do, do you want to let's go do this? Whatever. What, whatever. I guess so. It's just, it's, it's that flippant response of indifference. And I'm afraid that that one word or, or just the phrase, I, I guess so, sort of sums up how a lot of people are about faith and about God and about how they express their faith. Have you ever noticed that that's sort of the level of commitment that the average Christian today in America seems to bring to the table? The, the, you know, I, I guess so. So, we're going to go to church today? I guess so. We're going to be in a small group this year? I don't know. Whatever. Whatever you want to do. Whatever. We're going to go Wednesday night? We're going to take part in this? Whatever. Whatever you want to do. What's the driving thought behind those responses? Yeah, a negative one that says, I don't really care. I'm not really committed i'm just whatever well jesus talked about this it's interesting that after jesus in his 33 and a half years on earth several decades later appeared to john his dear friend who had been one of the apostles and the book of revelation begins with jesus appearing to john and jesus in His communications with John that are recorded in Revelation, in the early part of the book, he he essentially dictates to John letters to seven different churches. And they were specific words of, of instruction, encouragement, correction for different churches in his time. And these are timeless words for us because they speak to issues in, in churches today. And in the seventh letter, the letter to the church in Laodicea, he speaks to the issue of just indifference, spiritual apathy. Now, Laodicea, I'm not going to do some long history lesson for you, but it is a little helpful to know something about that church. Laodicea was actually destroyed. The city was destroyed by an earthquake 35 years before Jesus gave this word to them through John. When they rebuilt that city, it was the finest of that time. If you could just picture an ancient version of Vegas or Dubai or something, I mean, it, it, 
it really was the place to go. They had vast stadiums, and they were known for their their public baths and, and gathering places. It, it just really had more fine things than any other city in its day. It was the place to be. And they had one great shortage in that city, and, and if you've been in church, you probably know this, and that was they didn't have hardly any good fresh water sources. And so in order to supply this beautiful city that they had created, that people were flocking to, they had to tap into water in two other cities. And Colossae, which was known for its ice-cold water coming from the mountains. They created an aqueduct from there. And from Heropolis, which was known for its, its hot mineral baths and its healing effects. And so they're piping in ice-cold water and really hot water from another direction through these aqueducts. But as you can imagine, because of the great distances that the water had to flow, by the time it ever got to Laodicea, the problem with both of them is that what had started out icy cold or steamy hot, when it arrived, because of the passing of time, it had all just become nasty, lukewarm. Don't you hate when you're... You're thirsty and you, you reach for something ice cold or good and hot to take a drink and you're not paying attention and you accidentally pick up the wrong cup. And it was the cup left over from like dinner last night. And you're expecting icy cold or piping hot and you're not looking and you, you turn it up and it's just lukewarm. It, it's just, it tastes toxic, doesn't it? I mean, it's just awful. You just want to spit it out. And that's exactly the message that Jesus delivered to the church in Laodicea in response to what he saw that had happened to them. And so if you want to read along with me, I'm going to be reading from Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, where Jesus says this to the church in Laodicea. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. That, the word angel uh, in Greek, it just means messenger. So he's probably uh, referring to the pastor of that church, the messenger of that church. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. This is Jesus talking. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Boy, that's not very politically correct, is it? The words of Jesus, because you're not hot or cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy and need nothing. See, they're living in the finest town in that time. They're living in Vegas. You don't realize that you're wretched pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. Buy white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. An ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous. Everybody say that with me. Be zealous. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a strong word, isn't it? It seems like such a harsh word. But it is a word that's driven by love, and you hear that in the conclusion of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I long for you to walk in the fullness that, that you were made for. I long for you to live with the kind of intimacy that, that I've created you for. But you're missing out on that, and it just makes me sick. You, you ever felt that kind of sick before where you, you just watch what somebody else is doing, and because you care about them so much, it just puts a knot in the pit of your stomach. You just feel like you could throw up. If you've never felt that way, you, you've never had kids. <laughs> Every parent has felt this way. When you, you watch your kids that you would die for, and, and you've tried to point them in the right direction, and when you see them just drifting off into areas that they shouldn't be going to, and it just, it just knots your stomach, you, uh, you would just do anything to help them get back on track. Jesus is saying, it makes me so heartsick. I just, I just want to throw up. I'm, I'm so sick when I watch you missing out. And what you were made for. Now let's be real clear who he's talking to. Who's he writing to? Not a trick question. Who is Jesus writing to? The church. He's not writing to the lost world out there. He's not writing to the people who decided the beach looks better than the church today. The golf course looks better than the church today. He's talking to the folks who said on Sunday morning, do you want to go to church? And they said, I guess so. Whatever. Nothing better to do. We'll go. He's writing to the church. He's writing to people who clean up and talk the right talk on Sunday morning and who look like the church. And he said, I just want you to be clear. The way you're living out your faith makes me sick. I don't like it at all. And the disturbing thing is, if there's one letter of the seven letters in Revelation to these different churches, if there's one letter that seems like it fits the American church more than any other, it may be the church, the letter to the church in Laodicea. To these people who had come to a place that their lives were comfortable. Life was good. They were happy. They, they had the best life of anybody that they knew. And church was a part of it. And God had a slice of it. And God said to that, you don't even realize your own condition. You think life is so good. You think you have arrived and you're so far from it. How do we get there? How do we, when we, most of us have started out at a place of real spiritual passion of a real hunger for God and a real hunger to be at a healthy place and right with God and making a difference. I mean, how many of you would say, just by a show of hands, there has been a time in my life when I felt a real fire and a passion for God and the things of God in my soul. I can remember what that feels like across the board, hands raised around the room. You, you remember that feeling. I won't ask for a show of hands now, but how many of us would say, but with the passing of time, I realized that diminished and just grew weaker and weaker and weaker. I would dare say most of us would agree that that, that happens to all of us. How do you get there and what do you do about it? Well, 
I think based on what we read in the Word, there are several different things that cause us to get there. We'll take just a moment to, to consider those. And Jesus addresses the first one, and it's, it's the illusion of self-sufficiency. He said, you say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need anything. You don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Somewhere along the way, our access to all of the things that could make us comfortable in life, it, somehow it makes us numb or, or just indifferent to everything else that's going on in the world. Do you not feel that way? That just the comfort of life today makes us having access to whatever you would want that would make your life a little bit easier, a little bit more comfortable. It just leads us to a place of feeling like, I'm okay. I'm good. I don't need anything. I mean, if you're not in touch with what I'm talking about, you try this experiment this week. You just go out on the streets of any of the communities of the Eastern Shore where life seems to be pretty good. And you just try to talk to somebody about Jesus. You just try and bring up God and our desperate need for Jesus and for forgiveness and salvation. And it is disturbing to see how many people in our culture don't have any interest in that. It's just, I'm good. I'm good. Don't, don't need that. Don't need that God stuff. Or, or they can point to some church that they have some affiliation with. Got just enough God that I'm good. I, don't, I just don't need that. We live at a place that we don't feel like we need much God in our lives. Now, I know we'll, we'll hit some things along the way that trip us up. Somebody gets diagnosed with cancer. A child gets, teenager gets pregnant outside of wedlock or, you know, whatever. Some, some crisis comes up and suddenly we're, oh, Jesus, we need you, we need you. But, but short of those crisis moments, the truth be told, if you live comfortably with a good income in America today, way too much of the time we don't feel like we need much of God. Wouldn't you agree with that? Maybe that's just the preacher's problem. I, I struggle with that, thinking I've got it. I've got it. I'm good today. The net effect of that is we just want enough Jesus to make sure we're good for eternity and to make sure that our crises can be covered. As long as I've got my iPhone 10, as long as I've got my Toyota SUV, as long as I've got my flat screen TV in every room and my recliner in front of it, as long as my air conditioner's working, oh Jesus, it's going to be a crisis if the AC's not working or the heat's not working. I mean, seriously, do, do you all just not realize how much it's a crisis of faith if we have to go without air conditioning for a week? Does God not love me? Is He punishing me? We're like the only generation in the history of the world that's ever known the blessing of those things, and yet we feel like the devil's just against me. The air conditioner's broken down. Jesus, why are you not taking better care of me? We just want enough Jesus to make sure that our satellite never gets interrupted and that the AC never goes out and that we've always got the home that we dreamed of. Are, are we tracking together? And the result of that is terrible indifference. And to that, Jesus said, you got a lot of stuff and it's left you clueless as to how impoverished you really are. 
because you weren't made for stuff. Stuff will never bring you lasting satisfaction. It's why no matter how much stuff you have, you've always got to have more. And no matter how much money you make, you know, you always have to have more. I mean, it, we could poll ourselves here today and find out whoever's making the most money. I'll guarantee you whoever's making the most isn't making enough. They just need a little bit more because there's something else they don't have yet. And Jesus said, you just don't realize all of you who are chasing that. You're, you're just poor. You're poor and naked and blind. But if you come to me, that could be covered. The second thing that gets us there is just worldly distractions. We just get so distracted from the main thing. And we live in a world full of distractions. Jesus talked about this in the parable of the seeds. You remember he's talking about a farmer goes out to sow seeds and it's a picture of God speaking his word to his people. And, and the different kinds of soil that the seed falls on represents sort of the condition of our hearts and how we respond to that. And one of the types of soil, he said, the seed is received and and it begins to grow up but then it winds up being choked out by all the other competing stuff growing around it and jesus described that this way in mark four nineteen when he says but the worries of this life the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things everybody say for other things the desires for other things comes in and they choke the word making it unfruitful and again, it is a picture of 21st century life. We just have access to everything that you could imagine. I mean, what, what object or experience could you dream up that you don't have access to or couldn't gain access to? And now we're raising our kids and our grandkids, and we want them to have all of those experiences. And so we have to devote our resources and our time to making sure we have all of these experiences and we're creating well-rounded kids. You know what we're creating is kids that are just eaten up with ADD who are pointed in 50 different directions. And we've just got lives that are just so scattered that we've lost focus on saying really dialed in to the main thing. And that is loving God and loving the people around us and doing those well. And and we're so busy chasing after so many things. And it's not because we tried to do that, is it? I mean, life just happens. We start out in our faith walk excited about Jesus and excited about serving him and discovering we have a purpose and a calling and living that out. And then all this other stuff begins to unfold. You fall in love, you have a career, you have kids, and then all the stuff that springs from that. All the things that get complicated. And when it isn't, when it isn't crazy complicated, it's just busy complicated. You start having babies and trying to pay bills and cover all the responsibilities of work. And, and now kids are in sports and you're going in a hundred different directions. And, and in order to support the lifestyle that we've all got to have because you've got to measure up, you've got to work so many hours. And now both husband and wife have got to work. And life's just chaotic. And how are we going to take care of everything at home and do all of this stuff? And the net result is there's no margin. And the best we can hope for is if we're really committed, we'll give God 90 minutes on Sunday morning. And if we're super committed, we'll give him two hours on a weeknight and call it small group. And Jesus says, that really makes me sick to my stomach. Because that wasn't the life I made you for. That's never what life's supposed to look like. 
we're just so distracted and it just chokes out what God is wanting to say and do in our lives. Do you ever arrive at a place that you just, and maybe it's where you are right now, you might use this term to describe yourself today, but do you ever get to a place that you feel just spiritually numb? Where you just feel like, I don't know that I really feel God. I don't know that I'm really hearing from God. I just, I used to feel spiritual goosebumps a lot, but now I'm just, I'm just spiritually just kind of numb. You ever felt that way before? It's okay to raise your hand. Three of us have. Several of us have. You ever wonder what that is? What is it that causes me to feel numb? Because we think of it as, well, God must not be saying anything. There must not be anything going on in the spiritual realm for me because I don't, I don't recognize it. I don't feel it. I'm just so numb. But a lot of times what we don't realize is numbness is the opposite of what we think. I don't know who originally said this, but it's right on target. It says feeling numb isn't the absence of feeling. But it's the sensation of feeling too much at once. You see, when you're feeling all spiritually numb, it's not because God's quit talking. It's not because God isn't there and that there has failed to be a calling on your life and a real purpose and a direction. It's just because you got so much stuff going on, it's just sort of like white noise. Just whoosh. There's just so much going on around you. God's voice and everything that God's doing is just sort of covered by the white noise of all the busyness of our lives. And that creates a sense of spiritual numbness. A third thing that will get us there is just, quite honestly, is simply the passing of time. You can have a, a red-hot fire, but if you leave it alone, if you don't tend it, if you don't stoke it, you just let a little bit of time fast, pass, it'll just go down. It's amazing how fast a fire will just burn down and go out and just be dead and cold if you don't continue to stoke it. It's why Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift that God gave you when I laid my hands on you. Paul's reminding Timothy, you remember when I was with you? You remember the time when I was praying over you and I, I laid hands on you? The elders laid their hands on you and something happened in you. God birthed something in you. There was something new that, that stirred in you that had never been there before. And suddenly you were fired up and there were just new gifts that were poured out on you. And it was such a, a spiritual marker in your life. You remember what that was like, Timothy? And you know, Timothy's going, I remember that. I remember that fire and that passion. And Paul is saying, you better fan those flames. You better do something with that because some time has passed, Timothy. And if you don't use, if you don't act on what God has stirred up in you, it'll grow cold and dead and you'll forget about it. He says, you better fan the flame, son. You, you better use that and get busy because the passing of time alone will allow red-hot passion to just cool off. So you better do something with what you've been given. Well, again, the net result of all this is that well-meaning people just get busy, bogged down, cold and indifferent. We just back off and settle for enough of Jesus to get us to heaven, enough commitment that we can say we have a connection to a church, enough commitment that we'll pitch in and help if somebody really needs us in a bind, but don't count on me every week. Just, just let me help when you really need somebody. But I know I have a, um, 
a different perspective than the average person who goes to church as a pastor. Other, other leaders in the church have a similar perspective. But it, it's interesting to note over time the responses of people who are, who are asked to step into areas of service and how this has progressed to a place where the standard response of people is they don't want to be, by and large, American church people do not want to be counted on on a regular basis for any time commitment. It's like, yes, I will personally commit to go to church, but that's between me and God. And if there's a week I need to be out, then, you know, I can be out and nobody's hurt by that. But in terms of you're saying you want me to be in a role where you count on me to be there every week to either you know open my home or to lead a small group or work with students or work with children or work with preschoolers or you know work in the booth where there's something I've got to do every week. You want me to actually serve in CR where you're counting on me to be there every week. I can't commit to that. But if you ever need me on a particular week, I'll be glad to help you when you're in a pinch. That's become the standard level of commitment in the American church. And can I tell you what you can do with that? Nothing. You can't do anything meaningful with that. Because what that is is zero commitment. That is, I'm going to be there when it's convenient for me to be there. You, you can't plan anything around that. Well, I, I want to make sure that we've been honest with ourselves whether or not what I'm talking about today is true of us. And so I'm just really quickly going to mention a half dozen signs of living with lukewarm indifference in case we haven't gotten on each other's toes enough. Let's just get real honest about what this looks like. First of all, we're more concerned with fitting in and impressing people than with living for God. Am I popular? Do I blend in? And most importantly, do you like me? Do you like my clothes? Do you like my belt? Do you like my shoes? Do you like my posts on Facebook? I don't go on Facebook, but anyway, you get my point. We're, we're, we're so in need of each other's approval. Paul told Timothy that in the end times, people will be lovers of self. Well, then we must be in the end times because I've never seen a time when people were more lovers of self than what we are now. We wear our cell phones out taking selfies all the time. You know why they call it a selfie, don't you? Because it's so much harder to say narcissisty. <laughs> People will be lovers of self in the end times. Jesus said, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. I just wanted to go home and chew on. We want to be loved by everybody. He says, you got a problem if everybody loves you. If we obsess about what other people think, we will not be concerned about what God thinks. Secondly, we're obsessed with the here and now rather than eternity. Life just becomes all about things, what we can achieve and possess here and now. Thirdly, we rationalize sin and we live without a healthy fear of God. It's not adultery. It's an affair. It's not fornication. It's just hooking up and everybody does it. It's not porn. It's just adult entertainment. These are just things that everybody does. Everybody's got their issues, and who are you to judge me? When we begin to think like that, we've fallen into the trap. We've fallen into this pitfall. Number four, we believe in Jesus, but we rarely share our faith. 
Do you ever just pause to consider how is it that I could truly believe in heaven and hell and the reality of who God is and what life can be like for the people that I love to know him or to be forever separated from him? How can I know about those realities and never share with others about the reality of Jesus and how to, how to know him? Number five, we only turn to God when we need him. Rather than seek him daily, we just choose to seek him when it benefits us, when we need something from him. And number six, quite simply, we're just not that different from the world. Our entertainment looks like the world's entertainment. We'll go to the same raunchy movies that the world will go to. We'll listen to the same trashy music that the world will listen to. Our marriages will look like the world's marriages. Our dating relationships will follow the same path as lost people's dating relationships. Our divorce rate will be the same as the world's divorce rate. Our parenting will look like the world's parenting, and our values will look a lot like the world's values. Those are all strong indicators that we've just become spiritually lukewarm. So the $64,000 question is real simple. How do you regain the fire? How do you begin to live again with passion? And I know, I know what you expect me to say. If you go to church, you already know the, the programmed responses. You need to read your Bible more. You need to pray longer. You need to be more committed to worship, corporate worship and private worship. You need to be involved in a small group, and we can just continue on down the list of the things that are going to stir up spiritual fire within you. And the fact of the matter is, every one of those things will help to do that. They absolutely will. All of those things, I guarantee you, will have a positive effect in your life. But here's the problem. If that's what I stand here and tell you to do, you won't go do them if right now you're at a place that you're spiritually lukewarm. So why bother? Why waste your time telling you that? And I'm not putting you down. I'm, I'm admitting. I'll put myself in the same place with you. If I'm at a place that I'm spiritually lukewarm and you tell me, well, you should read your Bible more. You should pray more. You should worship more. You should share your faith more. You should do all these things that stir you. You're not going to do it, and neither am I if I'm at a place that I'm just so lukewarm and spiritually cold. So what do you do? Well, there is no silver bullet but I will suggest, and this is going to be the simplest message I'll deliver all year, I will suggest just one thing for you to do, maybe just as an experiment, to try and rekindle some spiritual passion in your life. And it is just a, a return to the basics in, in one simple way. Make a choice every day, and, and we need to probably tackle things in bite-sized pieces. So I'll just challenge you. If you're at a place that you go, I know. I know I'm not where I used to be. I'm not where I need to be. I know I've, I've become lukewarm. So let's just let's bite off this week. And then we can worry about the following week when it gets here. Just this week, for seven days, will you make a choice every day to do one thing that requires faith? To do one thing that would express your faith? And you just do that every day for the next seven days. It's a very, very simple experiment. Hebrews 11.6 reminds us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And ultimately, this is what we want to do. We want to be right with God. We want to live a life that's pleasing to God. And where we get off course is when we stop operating by faith, depending on God, believing in God, doing things that express a trust in God that cause this thing to be dynamic and, and 
interactive, and we just start living a lower life when we're not doing that. So could we just embrace the challenge every day for the next week? I want to do something unique each day that either requires faith or is an expression of my faith. And think of the multitude of different ways that that could happen. When you at school or at work or at the gym or wherever stand up for somebody who's always made fun of or put down, that's an expression of faith. That's the love of Christ. When you choose to forgive somebody that you hadn't wanted to forgive because they're a low-down, dirty dog and they don't deserve it and they hadn't asked for it and you still choose to forgive them, that takes Christian faith. When you're praying, God, today show me some way I can live out my faith, and a name or a face comes to mind, somebody you haven't talked to in a long time. Well, that seemed random that that just came up right as I'm praying that. And you pick up the phone and call them. You text them. You write them a note. That's an expression of your faith. When you apologize to someone that you don't like, but you've hurt them and you need to make it right, that's an expression of your faith. When you're the person who cannot stand praying aloud in front of anybody else and in your small group, you choose to pray aloud this week, that's an expression of your faith. When you stop dodging going to CR, When you stop avoiding showing up for small group and you come this week, that's an expression of faith. When you start praying again for someone or something that has just seemed impossible, that's an expression of your faith. When you just remind somebody along the way this week, hey, don't forget that Jesus loves you and he cares about what's going on in your life. That expresses your faith. When you invite a stranger to come to church, when you just ask them, hey, are you involved in a church in the area? I'd love to have you come to my church for you. That's an expression of faith. The list could go on and on and on. Would you be willing to take a challenge this week to find some way to express your faith once a day, every day? I close with the closing words of Jesus in this letter. He said, I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent, be devoted, and turn from your indifference. It's going to take diligence, it's going to take devotion and discipline to get past the place of being indifferent. And his closing word then is, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Never lose sight of the fact that this is the goal. God is not a slave driver trying to figure out how he can get more out of you. He is the father who loves his children and whose greatest joy is to experience intimate fellowship with us. And he's saying, it's going to take some intentionality. It's going to take some devotion. It's going to take some effort for us to have the relationship that I desire for us to have. But if you'll just return to these things, you'll discover a fresh level of intimacy as if I've just walked through your door and sat down at your table and suddenly it's there again. 
Are you at a place right now that you feel like it's been a long time since Jesus has had dinner at your table? You know what I'm talking about? Do you remember what that's like? Do you remember what it's like where God is so real in your life that it's like he walks through the door of your house every day. He eats at your table. He lives with you. He, He goes through the moments of the day with you. And when you've gotten to that place that you've just cooled off and drifted out there where it's like, man, I don't know if my prayers are getting past the ceiling. I don't know the last time that I've seen God move or answer a prayer or or do something significant in my life. I don't know if God cares. I don't know if I care. Don't just hear Jesus telling you how much it makes him sick that things have changed so much, but also hear him saying, if you'll just turn back. If you'll just bring some devotion, some effort, some intentionality back to this, I'm standing right there at the door. I am just waiting for you to make a move. I want to come in. I want us to be intimate again. I promise I'll do my part if you'll just return and do yours. And so that's the invitation today. That's the call. He's standing at the door and knocking, saying, Would you? Would you return to me? Would you take a step of faith in my direction? Would you join me as we bow and turn to him in prayer? That wonderful picture of Jesus standing at the door and knocking, it's it's been used by people countless times as a, a call for people for the very first time to receive Christ into their life and experience forgiveness. And if you've never done that, that absolutely is the number one priority today that you would just say, Jesus, I know I need you in my life, and I invite you to come in to forgive my sins and make me new. If that's the desire of your heart, you don't have to practice or clean up or get ready for that. Just make that your prayer today. Why don't you just just in your own heart, just pray those words, Jesus, I need you. I need you in my home. I need you in my family. I need you in my heart and my life. Would you please forgive my sins? Would you make a new person out of me? And would you take control of my life and my future? The best I know how, I give you the reins of my life. I guarantee you, if you prayed that from your heart, God not only heard it, but he answered it. Sins are being forgiven, a fresh start, and the gift of the Holy Spirit being put in you. But now to the rest of us, I want to remind you, the words of Jesus when he said, I stand at the door and knock, they were addressed to the church. They were addressed to people like you and me who just with the passing of time had gotten busy and and so satisfied with their lives that they had lost sight of what it's like to live in an intimate relationship with Jesus, living for the things that God had designed them to, to do and be about. And if that's where you find yourself today, if you're ready to do something about it, would you just tell him? Would you just tell him how much you long for him to come in and be intimate with you again, to eat at your table, to be in the middle of your life? And would you be willing to take a step of faith in, in his direction? Why don't you just pray a dangerous prayer and say, Jesus, show me today. Show me something each day this week that would let me walk in faith. Show me things that I can only do if you empower me to do them. And the best I know how, I'm just committing that today 
And tomorrow and each day of this week, I'm going to respond in faith to what you show me. I said that's a dangerous prayer because some of the things he's going to show you are going to be things that you're not itching to do today. He may be telling you to forgive the person you're seated next to. To reach out to love and serve somebody you live under the same roof with that you're mad at right now. And as you respond in faith, Jesus is going to show up. He's going to be the third person in that equation. And it's going to make a difference in your life and in their life. Jesus, you speak. You work. You move among us. Bring glory to yourself by what you do. And we'll give you thanks for it as we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, We would love the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.